Ellen, and this is my husband, Gary. Today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 22 and the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Isaiah 22 and Luke 1, starting with verse 46. Following the reading, we will light the fourth candle of Advent, the candle of peace. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, Isaiah 22. I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. Luke 1, Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The past three weeks, we've lit the candles of love, hope, and joy. Today, we light the candle of peace. May it remind us of the peace of God, which passes all understanding and guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Let us pray. God of hope, fill us with joyful expectation and peace beyond reason, that we may eagerly await your coming kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. In our day, may righteousness and justice flourish and peace abound. Amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Katie, and I'm on staff here at Haverhill Commons. Uh, I don't know about you all, but to me, it seems like December just started yesterday. So the fact that Christmas is a week from today feels almost impossible. So whether you're like me and feel like this month has flown by and you're wishing it would slow down so you can enjoy it more, or if you feel like it's not moving fast enough and you can't wait to get to next Sunday, or if you're feeling something entirely different altogether about this holiday season, whatever it is for you, God can handle it. So let's take a minute to pause and allow him to meet you where you're at. After a moment of silence, I'll pray to bring us back together. Heavenly Father, we come before you in anticipation of your Son. I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds this morning and throughout this week as we await his coming. It's in your name we pray. 
Amen. Well, holidays are funny things. They always come with a lot of emotion. Whether they bring up good emotions or not so good emotions varies from person to person and holiday to holiday. But typically, we all feel some kind of way, even if that feeling is ambivalent, about the various holidays. And when you take all those different emotions and throw different traditions and ways of celebrating into the mix, you end up with a lot of different opinions about all things festive. And this is especially true for Christmas. For instance, some people swear by getting a real live Christmas tree each year, while others think that an artificial tree is the way to go. And some people like to open presents on Christmas Eve, while others wait until Christmas Day. And some people think it's okay to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Those people would be wrong, but you know, do what you want, I guess. So I'm gonna let you in on a little secret though. I am not the biggest fan of Christmas music. I'm always afraid saying that will make me sound like a Grinch. And it's not that I don't like it at all, it's just that there are so many other songs that I love that I would rather sing and dance along to. There are a few Christmas songs that I do enjoy, though. I'll admit they're pretty random. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is my all-time favorite, so this sermon series worked out really well for me. Unpopular opinion, I know, but Last Christmas by Wham, very close second. <laughs> Little Drummer Boy is also a good one. And All I Want for Christmas is You is always allowed. And growing up, I really loved Mary Did You Know. It was on an album my family listened to every year on the day after Thanksgiving to kick off the Christmas season, so that particular song has always felt like Christmas to me. Well, recently I was with some friends and mentioned that it was one of the few Christmas songs I liked, and the next thing I know, I've set off another holiday debate. One of my friends groaned and immediately started explaining all the reasons that Mary Did You Know is a terrible song. He said, it's so dumb. It's just a bunch of rhetorical questions. And what do you mean, Mary, did you know? Of course she knew. Well, initially, I shrugged off his objections and felt pretty resolute in thinking that it's a great song. And then it came time to start thinking about our passage for this morning. And the more I read and the more I sat with it, the more I started to realize, I think Caleb was right. Not about it being a dumb song necessarily, but about the idea that Mary did know. And if Mary did know, maybe it is a little silly. But let's hold off on that song for a little bit and talk about two other songs. Right now we're in a series called Rejoice, Rejoice, the Savior Comes. And each week we've explored a different aspect of waiting as we've considered how different people in the Gospels waited for the birth of Jesus. We've also explored a different verse each week of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which brings us to our first song. Each verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is pulled from a prophecy made by Isaiah. And Isaiah's prophecies are all about waiting, about Israel's longing and Jesus's fulfillment of that longing. This week's verse highlights Israel was waiting for a Messiah who would have the key of David. It says, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. The words of this verse are inspired by Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. I will give him the key to the house of David. 
the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. And when he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. Now, as the highest position in the royal court, holding the key of David was a sign of the highest authority, a symbol of privilege, which is probably part of the reason why the Israelites believed in a Messiah who would hold a great deal of political and military power and influence among the rulers of the land. And the Messiah would be the one with the power and authority to decide who would be allowed into the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our passage this morning and our next song, a song about precisely how Jesus would one day use his power and authority. Now, Matt preached a few weeks ago on the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and giving her the news that she would be having a child and that that child would be the Messiah. He also talked about how God's gift didn't stop there because God also gave Mary Elizabeth, her cousin, to be a companion in her waiting because Elizabeth was also with child in a miraculous way. So if anyone could understand what Mary was going through, it was Elizabeth. So a few days after Mary hears the news from Gabriel, she heads out to Judea to visit and wait with Elizabeth. As Mary arrives, Elizabeth's child leaps within her, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Elizabeth calls Mary blessed because she believed in God's promises to her. And what comes next is our passage for this morning. Now this section of scripture is referred to as Mary's song or the Magnificat. And this song is Mary's response to Elizabeth's blessing. Now Magnificat is the Latin word for magnifies, and that's exactly what Mary does in this song. She magnifies the Lord for the ways he has already fulfilled his promises to her and to his people. Now like most songs, the Magnificat can be split up into a couple of stanzas. Stanza one consists of verses 46 to 50, and in these verses, Mary is reflecting on what it means to her to be chosen to bear the Messiah. Her words are deeply personal, and she's praising God for his great mercy to her, a lowly servant girl. Mary herself is the subject of these verses as she considers the implications of God showing her mercy and choosing her to be the mother of his son. Now that choice is our first glimpse in these verses of God identifying with the poor and the marginalized. At this point, the Israelites know that the coming savior will be a part of the line of David. But considering how long ago David lived and ruled and how many wives he had, several generations had come and gone, and there were hundreds of people who could claim to be descendants of David. Some of those hundreds could have been wives or daughters of wealthy and powerful members of society, religious or political leaders with great influence. But instead, he chooses Mary, a young, poor, unwed girl who feared the Lord and believed in his promises. And we know that she feared the Lord in part because of this very song that she sings. 
Her song is filled with echoes of songs and allusions from moments all throughout the Old Testament. It was customary on Israelite feast days to sing the songs of Old Testament figures like Moses and Miriam, Deborah and David. And Mary would have known these songs and these scriptures by heart. Specifically, Mary's song parallels the song Hannah sings after she gives birth to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary's heart and mind were filled with scripture, and considering her experience with Gabriel, it's not hard to imagine her reflecting on these songs of praise as she embarked on her three to four day journey to see Elizabeth. I also imagine that she had a lot of time on her journey to sit with her fears. It's only been a few days since Gabriel appeared to her, and surely she still has a lot of questions. Questions like, will Joseph even agree to marry me anymore? Or what will my family and my neighbors think? Even if she hasn't actually told anyone yet, at the very least, she's anticipating the shame that will come when people find out. So when she first sees Elizabeth, and is reminded and encouraged that her child will not be a source of shame, but of blessing, and therefore reminded of God's overwhelming love for her, she can't help but burst into song. And not just any song, but a song that begins with magnifying God's mindfulness of the poor and lowly in choosing to entrust her with the greatest of all gifts. Not because of her merit or status, or because she was special in some way, but because she was a regular person, willing to receive God's grace. As she sings this first stanza, glorifying God for his mercy towards her personally, and then in the second stanza, in verses 51 to 55, she shifts her focus outwards, making God the main subject, as she praises him for the ways he has already acted faithfully to his people, and for the eventual impact that the coming of her child will have on the world. And this is the part where I think her song gets really interesting. This is the part where she reminds us that the fulfillment of God's promises doesn't come through the proud or the powerful or the wealthy, because God chooses to flip the tables by scattering the proud and haughty, bringing down princes from their thrones and exalting the humble filling the hungry with good things, and sending the rich away with empty hands. And because she knows her scriptures, she knows that God has done these things already. She knows of Moses and Miriam singing a song of deliverance when God rescued the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. She knows the story of God working through Esther to rescue the Jews from Haman's oppressive reign. And she knows that God used Daniel to rescue his people from Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And while the words she speaks seem to be in the past tense, he has scattered, he has brought down, he has filled, he has helped. The Greek form of her words is in a tense called the aorist, or a prophetic past tense. The use of the aorist tense views the future work of God as so sure that it is presented as past and accomplished. It allows her to remember what God has done in the past while also projecting into the future with certainty the effect of the work of her coming son. And that effect will be one of powerful reversals. 
Her song points to moral, social, and economic revolutions that were so counter to not only the culture at the time of Jesus' birth, but in our time too. Oscar Romero, a priest and martyr from El Salvador, often drew comparisons between Mary and the poor and powerless people in his community. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian who dedicated much of his energy to speaking out against the Nazis, called the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Now that might seem like a bold statement, but the Magnificat has often been viewed as dangerous by people in power. Even as recently as the 1980s, some countries such as India, Guatemala, and Argentina have at times outright banned the Magnificat from being recited in liturgy or in public. Because Mary's song points to God's desire for a sure and complete upheaval of the rich and powerful in favor of those who are barely scraping by, found on the edge of society and forgotten or overlooked. So while I think Mary did know, I also think there's still a sense in which she didn't fully know. She knew that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would be the one to save not just the world, but also individual people like Mary herself. She knew that he would fulfill God's promises and that he would do miraculous things. But I don't know if she knew the specifics of how or when it would happen. While she had a sense that he would exalt the humble and fill the hungry, I'm not sure if she knew that he would one day be arrested that she would have to watch the very people he came to save shouting for his death, and that she would witness with her very own eyes her firstborn son hanging, left to die on a cross, seemingly succumbing to the power structures she thought he would upend. And I don't know if she knew that he would rise again from the dead, that he would defeat not just proud and oppressive rulers, but also sin and shame and death. She probably had expectations of what the Messiah would look like. Gabriel even told her that he would be the son of the Most High, seated on the throne of a kingdom that would never end. And as a faithful Israelite, she was waiting for liberation and deliverance from oppressive Roman rulers. So she might have pictured a Messiah who was strong and used political or military force to gain this eternal throne. Now, Jesus does do these things that Gabriel spoke of, but not necessarily in the way that Mary expected. And based on her expectations, I wouldn't have blamed her if she responded to the news by kicking back and waiting while Jesus did his thing. But Mary didn't wait passively after she received the news from Gabriel and was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Her song is her response to God's faithfulness in bringing the long-anticipated Messiah. And even then, Mary still needs to wait through his birth, infancy, preteen and teen years, young adulthood, and eventually his years of ministry, all the way up to his death and resurrection for the fulfillment of that Messiah to come. She still needs to see it all through. And as she's waiting for the Messiah to fulfill God's purposes, Mary participates with God in nurturing Jesus. Even though she fully believed that God would fulfill his promises, and even though she didn't know how it would all play out, she knew she couldn't just sit back and watch. 
Instead, she praises God for the things he's done. And then she actively does what she can to help ensure that Jesus grows into who he's meant to be. She changes his diaper and feeds him. She keeps him safe and lets him go to work with Joseph to learn the family trade. She encourages him in the beginning of his ministry to help a young couple celebrate their wedding. She follows him throughout Jerusalem and up to the cross. And she models a new kind of family for those who love and believe in Jesus. She knew in part, but not in full. And she participated with God in helping to usher in his purposes for her and for the world. So what about us? We do know that Christ was arrested and crucified on a cross. We do know that he rose from the dead and defeated the power of sin and shame and death. We know that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. So that should be it, right? We can just kick back and wait while Jesus does his thing. Except it's easy to look at the world around us and feel like this can't be it. Not when wars still rage. Not when people are still oppressed because of the color of their skin. Not when people are still hungry or homeless or sold into slavery. Not when the people we see in power around us continue to use that power to lift themselves up and increase their own wealth than using it to lift up those around them. Not when there have been more mass shootings than there are days in the last year. Not when there are people who still experience pain so deep that they lose all hope and desire to live. So we wait. We wait for the day when we will see in full. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So the question is then, will we wait passively, watching from the sidelines, hoping that maybe, possibly, we'll get to see God's activity at some point? Or will we wait like Mary? Will we, will we receive God's mercy freely given to us and respond with praise? Will we actively jump in and participate in helping to usher in the kingdom of heaven here on earth? Will we uphold the expected cultural norms of fawning over and catering to the wealthy and powerful in our societies through our words and actions? By putting on our best handshake and smile for people in authority, while we avert our eyes and walk quickly by those we perceive as too poor or too lowly? Or will we partner with Jesus in exalting the humble? Will we learn the names of those around us that society overlooks or discards to the fringes and look them in the eye and greet them warmly? Will we, like Jesus, treat the humble among us with as much dignity and value and respect as we do the rich and powerful? Now, even though he does hold the key of David, Jesus didn't use his power to favor those who are wealthy or influential. Instead, he sides with the neglected and forgotten, the poor and the hungry, the hurt and broken, and all those who believe in him. He opens wide the new heavenly home for all those who trust in him. And he makes safe the way that leads on high to those who find their assurance in him. 
and ensures that the path to misery is no more. And that is why we can sing, Rejoice, Rejoice, Emmanuel. Now, Advent is a season where we prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord, both his coming as an infant and for his eventual return in glory. And in this season, God is inviting us not just to preparation, but also to participation with the Spirit in bringing about his purposes for us and for the world around us. Now, one easy way you could jump in and participate this Advent, maybe you could identify someone around you that the world would consider to be humble and lowly, and do something before Christmas to show that person that they are valued. Have a conversation with them, maybe over a cup of coffee that you buy for them, or maybe give them a gift of some kind. Or if you need help coming up with ideas for other ways you can participate, or if you already have ideas and want to connect with other people about participating with you, Pastor Matt or I would love to talk to you and help you brainstorm or help support you. So as we partner with God in his mission to make disciples of all nations and to share the love of Christ to others in word and deed, we'll begin to see glimpses of what the kingdom of God can look like. A kingdom where there's forgiveness and reconciliation, where the orphan and widows are taken care of and the hungry are fed, the poor have shelter, where there's abundance and not scarcity, where love reigns instead of hate, for now we know in part, and one day we will know in full. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we are longing eagerly for your final coming, for the day when we will finally see the fulfillment of the expectations that you subverted, of the tables you've already flipped, for the proud to be humbled and the humbled to be exalted. Thank you for the example of Mary as a reminder to us that you show mercy to the lowly and call those who love you blessed. Give us your heart for all those around us. We long for the day when the tears will be no more and we will see our home descending from above. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>